Hello, everyone, and welcome to BrainX Talks. I am Ashish Khanna, along with your co-host for today, Alok Kothari. Hello. I come to you from Cleveland, Ohio. We hope to make this a podcast about conversations with leading figures and their work at the crossroads of machine learning and healthcare. Let me introduce myself quickly. I've spent more than 10 years in the field of machine learning, doing research and development all over the world. I'm hoping to use my background in machine learning to engage our podcast guests in interesting conversations. Dr. Kanna. Thanks, Alok. And I come to you all from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I am an intensivist and anesthesiologist and spend most of my time in research, education, and innovation centered on perioperative and critical care outcomes. I'm also one of the founding members of BrainX, and the BrainX Group that is a collaborative platform for big data analytics. Alok, would you like to introduce our guest for today? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nargis Razavian, who I had the pleasure to share a few years of overlap at Carnegie Mellon. So Nargis right now is an assistant professor at New York University, Langon Center for Healthcare Innovation and Delivery Sciences. Her research lab focuses on various applications of machine learning and AI for medicine with a clinical translation outlook. Her main focus and collaborations include representation learning and classification using electronic health records, medical images, and clinical notes. She is involved in a diverse set of medical collaborations around early detection of diseases such as dementia, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, diabetes, among others. Before NYU Langone, she was a postdoc at CILVR lab at NYU Courant CS department, and she received her PhD at CMU Computational Biology Group. So we are very happy to have Nargis here with us. And what, what is very interesting to me when I was going through her profile was her extensive work with EHRs. And in fact, she has some very interesting recent work coming out of her group on graph representation learning for EHRs. So my first question to Nargis would be, could you tell us what it is? So thank you for the introduction. And I'm, I'm very happy to explain to you just a little bit about our latest work, which is around using some modality, which is very common in medicine. It's called electronic health records. And this data is very abundant in multiple institutes. And we, we were interested, we are interested in using this data to predict diseases before they occur clinically. And in particular, several diseases do have interventions that can happen and they are more effective when they are done early, such as dementia. And that is kind of our interest. And that was one task that we tackled in this particular paper. But the, I guess the machine learning novelty of it uh, was that we employed some very recent technique which is uh, based on graph neural networks, which is really the state of the art in representing high dimensional data, such as EHR. And uh, we showed that using graph neural networks with quite a lot of adjustments, which we can go into uh, in further detail later, these uh, graph neural networks are really good representations for summarizing all patient variables into really useful vectors so that they can help us better forecast dementia. Like we actually validated it on predicting dementia for NYU patients two years in advance. 
And similarly, we also validated that this approach is also very good at predicting mortality and also readmission for patients who are admitted to ICU. So very diverse tasks turned out to be really successful when we tried graph neural networks um, on them. So I'm happy to give more details if you want to jump into those. Yeah, so there has been some work on both non-graphical deep learning models to represent EHR data. And what we would love to know is why are graphical methods better? And uh, like at a conceptual level, how do you think we can explain to people that they represent the data better? Right. So this is a great conceptual question. So by nature, I guess let's start with knowing what is electronic health records. So electronic health record is everything that is captured in the digital interface that it's between the doctor and recording the patient information. When I say it can be very high dimensional, I'm talking about at least half a million variables that that's not even all the variables that you can pull out of EHR per patient. So the data is very high dimensional. And this has always been a challenge in machine learning. How do we model high-dimensional data? A lot of approaches use uh, techniques that come from natural language processing, and they embed each variable into some high-dimensional like vector, and they do stuff with it. And what graph neural network does is it borrows from the fact that many of these variables are actually related with each other. So if a patient, for example, already has diabetes, let's say an elderly with diabetes, their glucose is going to be high. They are probably going to be on a bunch of medications. They might likely have hypertension. So if we know one variable about them, we can use that information to, even if that data is missing, to kind of fill in the variables that around obesity, around hypertension, around glucose, etc. So That's the concept that the graph neural networks allow us to do, which is using the structure that is inherent between these very high dimensional variables about the patient towards better modeling. So that's, I guess, the core of the value. And I guess a little bit more detail is that in, in practice, these structures used to be always manually uh, defined. And as the scale of the variables get really big, like you're talking about half a million variables, we can no longer really define the connections between each individual item very accurately. It's not feasible at all. So our approach allows us to automatically learn this structure and then combine them to to summarize the patient's uh, entire history so that it can be useful for predictive uh, purposes. One interesting change here was you used variational methods to make sure the feature representations end up being more distinct and don't cluster together. Is that the right interpretation? Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. So maybe I can also add to that. So when we learn these structures, we want them to be uh, distinguishable. We want kind of, uh, we want expressiveness. We want still to have a diverse set of representations. And the standard methods in other fields in AI, for example, natural language processing or imaging, uh, when they use these graph neural networks, in that 
world, it's okay to have kind of these clusters to come on top of each other. But for healthcare, we have really diverse dimensions that we want to keep. And this technique that we use, which is called variational regularization, it actually kind of encourages the model to pull apart these clusters during the training. And that's, that's what variational regularization does. We kind of a priori prioritize the model to kind of move towards some centers that are far apart from each other. And that will allow us, as we show in the paper on multiple different ways that we analyze, this allows us to retain the expressiveness and uh, get better performance. So could we speak to a little bit about the applications of this technique and how it became better in certain tasks? So we usually when you design a model, I guess you you compare it against a lot of benchmark tasks in some very specific applications, as you mentioned. So in our paper, our original application, the end goal of this research with my student is as I mentioned, to do early detection of dementia because the clinical trials for dementia have, all of them have failed. Despite the fact that it's been a focus of research for like over 30 years, there is still nothing, zero drug to reverse the uh, dementia. And the, the finding right now is that we are just intervening too late. By the time the symptoms occur, the brain atrophies have already happened and you can't really regenerate them as much as like preventing the, the damage. So that was why we started this project, early detection of dementia. And that is one of the applications that we show in this paper. We look at 1.6 million NYU patients and we uh, train this model for predicting dementia onset for patients who do not have any sign of dementia yet between one to two years into the future, so at least one year before. And uh, so we compare our model with a lot of other state-of-the-art models from various types of standard models like logistic regression, random forest, gradient boosting models, which are very well known, I think, in medical field. We compare against them. We also compare against a lot of deep learning models that are a little bit more advanced, such as embedding-based models, which was some kind of work which was done also at Google a while ago for similar tasks. And also we compared with a bunch of transformer-based models, which are even more strong and more state-of-the-art. And we show that variationally regularizing graph neural network achieves really, really statistically significant performance increase in task of predicting dementia two years in advance. So we were very happy about that. Typically, when we show a paper, when we show a model, we also are interested in providing some results on publicly available data sets because that allows us to compare to other teams and other teams can later compare to us. And because of that, we also explored this approach on two publicly available data sets, uh, which are both around ICU. One of them is MIMIC. Uh, MIMIC 3, actually, and the other one is EICU. So for MIMIC, we uh, also focus on predicting mortality during the ICU stay. After the first 24 hours, um, can we predict that using this method? We benchmarked it again, again against the state of the art, and our method really does show that there's quite a lot of value in predictive performance. It's, it achieves the state of the art. 
And similarly for EICO, we focus on a, a task um, called readmission prediction, which is also of interest to a lot of uh, benchmark studies. And in all three tasks, the method is uh, achieving state-of-the-art right now, which is very exciting to us. Yeah, Nargis, as a ICU physician, you know, all of this definitely makes me excited. I, I wanted to go back to the discussion on EHR one more time because I have personally always struggled and found that specifically in the intensive care unit, the, the EHR uh, does not capture some of our valuable data. And when I say valuable, I mean data that defines cardiorespiratory physiology or changes in cardiorespiratory physiology. So for example, atrial fibrillation is a common arrhythmia or a rhythm change in, the, in, in, the, in critically ill patients. Now, if I had to do research on, on critically ill patients having atrial fibrillation or, or maybe develop a prediction model that looks at what patients are likely to, to go into atrial fibrillation an hour from now, two hours from now, I, I'm limited by the fact that the EMR doesn't really capture atrial fibrillation unless some some clinician or a bedside nurse would accurately document when the patient went into atrial fibrillation the first time based on what they see on a monitor. That does almost never happen because most of our documentation is 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 later on after the event has, has already happened. And there is no way our bedside monitors are directly talking to our EMRs. So we don't get to see those changes in rhythms transferred to our, our EMRs as well. And, and the same problem with, for example, blood pressure data um, is not captured very granularly in EMRs. How can we, you know, still do all of this work and rely on EMRs? And, you know, should we look at other avenues to, to sort of do some of this work that I talked about? That is Great question. That is always, I guess, discussion and it has pros and cons. It's always a conflict. So EHR data is definitely not capturing everything. Absolutely. That is true. And that is like a big problem uh, in um, many of the studies, including our own studies. There are always limitations. On the other hand, there are also a lot of gaps in healthcare that are not about these maybe very specific items that are missing in data in our uh, EHR data, but but about very high level information that that's there is and it's it's lost in the in somewhere in the process. So I do have this I guess dilemma always in thinking about which collaborations are gonna potentially be influ- uh, helpful in some way. Our goal is to help improve something. And uh, just look for avenues where we think something could help. So many times, I guess I I would think about it this way. So for many of what we are doing, we are not always necessarily inventing a new, I guess, uh, necessarily diagnostic approach always. Many times, for example, even in dementia, and I will come back to ICU as well, We already know that primary care physicians are not screening for dementia, and we are trying to only focus on people with very obvious signs uh, prior to their disease over many years. 
and somehow they were just not screened for many reasons. And so we try to first our priorities, is there anything that EHR can help with rather than going and saying, you know, EHR is the, the only way to go? I guess maybe I should make that very clear. And so in terms of particular diseases that need much more manual annotations, let's say atrial fibrillation, the episodes, etc. So that is harder. And that is going to be a job for the collaborators to, to actually produce good data, at least for the validation part of it. We usually say in machine learning that, okay, your training data, even if it's noisy, even if it's not labeled, we can do stuff with it. We can try to train models in an unsupervised way. Let's say you, you just have the heart rate data or like ECG signal without even annotations. There are still things that you can learn with that, with self-supervised learning, unsupervised learning. But uh, to validate it, you still need really a gold standard data. So this is a great point that you raised. You need to be very thoughtful in terms of which collaborations, which <clears throat> gaps in healthcare can potentially be addressed with what we have right now in EHR. And then which ones, well, we just need better manually annotated data. And did I answer your question? Maybe I missed uh, some aspects of it. You can remind me. No, that was, that was precisely what I was looking for. I mean, you, you bring up some very important points and, and really the message for the audience is yes. Yes, the EHR is, is a rich source of data, but certainly it's not the, the beginning and end of all possible data sources. So, so I guess, you know, one part is that. And the other part that you bring up is the value of excellent collaborations and having on the clinical side of things, having someone who has an appropriate knowledge of what to look for in the EHR and how best to, you know, annotate the, the EHR. I guess part of it is that we have to start learning what data scientists need for developing good prediction models. And then only can we really improve how we are collecting data. Because if we don't collect data well, then we don't allow smart people like yourself to, to really come in and, and help us with, with prediction modeling. So, no, those are excellent points. Thank you. Sure. So I wanted to come at the data from a slightly different angle. Now, I guess in machine learning community, we are blessed with pretty open data sets and we just get to you know play with our toys and tools and data sets can be curated. There are workshops which release data sets. What, what doesn't become very, what is not very clear to a lot of people in the ML community is getting access to all of this data in the EHRs is not straightforward. And uh, would love to understand whether you had to yourself overcome some barriers, whether you know of experiences of others who had to overcome barriers to access this data. Sure. This is a topic very close to my heart as well, because I am also at, at the heart of it. I'm a machine learning person and I understand the value of public data sets. So there are two aspects to think about, I guess, public data. I think, first of all, there are a few publicly available data sets. There, I guess maybe first let me say, healthcare, it's so diverse. There are so many events going on. There are so many diseases, so many conditions, so many situations. So 
if you actually dig into it, every particular question, you probably can find some small data sets. If you are thinking about electronic health records in the field of ICU, which is intensive care environment, it's a very special cohort of patients. These are not your regular, you know, young, healthy patients, but they, they are two publicly available data sets with pretty decent size. As I mentioned, MIMIC, MIMIC 3, 4 is coming out. They are very useful and require uh, getting access to them. It's not, it's not a Kaggle data set. You cannot just download them. You have to finish something called CT training to prove to the collaborator that you understand this is patient data. This is de-identified, but it's very valuable. You, you still should adhere to certain standards of data privacy and being careful with your analysis, etc. And that is really, uh, like a lot of people think that this is a barrier, but you cannot go below this for patient data. I, I would never advocate for mishandling of this valuable patient data. That's one aspect. So it's accessible, but it's limited, yes. The other aspect is, as I said, diversity. So if my task is dementia prediction over two years, yeah, I cannot do that with Mimic. Mimic is a short stay. It's, it's a much more a much different aspect than part of the healthcare. And so even for dementia, there are publicly available data sets. For example, some data sets like ADNI and NAC are pretty big and publicly available. I guess let me uh, summarize this. There are... Healthcare is very large, very diverse. And as Ashish mentioned, you really need to talk and collaborate with clinicians if you actually want to develop something that's clinically meaningful and useful. If you go into that uh, collaboration, I bet for you that for most of the tasks, you will find some okayish data set. They're probably going to be small, but there are things out there. It's just that, you know, we are used to just running a PyTorch command and downloading the data automatically in our code. And guess what? No, you actually have to do a little bit of work. It's not easy. You have to be defining your labels. It's not going to be so obvious somebody else had done it for you. Like if somebody did it for you, they would have also done the machine learning part, I guess. So it's harder, but there are public data sets out there. I can say that. Um. Yeah, this is this is great, Nargis, and 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 thank you for you know establishing a connection with the clinicians and understanding that you know this is this is true teamwork, and and we really appreciate that and your insight in where you bring up these connections, and they're so so important. On the same note, you know, clinicians have been so busy this whole last year with the global pandemic of of COVID, and it has affected all of our lives. It has affected not just how we take care of our patients, it has affected our personal lives. And in a sense, it has given us access to a large data set of ICU and outside of ICU outcomes. And with the pandemic still going on, this is a huge opportunity for, you know, machine learning data scientists to actually help us understand what we are not able to understand looking at COVID patients directly. So what about some of your work with with COVID projects? 
what inspired you to get into the covid area of of work and what is it that that you've done in this area sure covid was almost a year ago uh, a little over a year ago march i think 15th was uh, the last day that i hold classes in person and then things changed so new york was one of the earliest cities i, I would say maybe the earliest city in the us which hit covid I guess let's say that we everything went on pause. The moment we started to see COVID cases in the community, that was when you you knew okay, it has it has arrived. So NYU immediately started preparing. I guess all New York City hospitals started preparing. Uh, they switched seven floors, uh, which had regular inpatient care to ICU, just preparing for this. I guess a big flow of patients that we were scared that we knew that they are gonna come. And the wave followed. So I'm at a unit at NYU Langone, which is uh, called Predictive Analytics Unit. So we we are not just academic group. We actually also help with operational projects whenever something comes up. And obviously, there's a new disease coming in. There is some data trickling in. Initially, the data is small because we only had like 10 patients first week and then like suddenly 50 and then uh, per day starts things start to get very scary and real like 100 per day and so there were a lot of questions that we immediately as as a group at predictive analytics we signed up and say hey we can help uh, tell us what we can help with so as you said there are when a new disease comes in there are many questions that are unknown questions Initially, we didn't have the, the testing infrastructure scaled, like we had to send it somewhere outside NYU. So the first few weeks, the question that was important was, okay, like this patient came in with these symptoms, we can do these kind of labs, but we can't do COVID tests. Can we predict who is likely to actually have COVID? So we could tell them to, you know, do social distancing, et cetera, and not spread it. But that question very quickly actually became less less urgent because NYU facilities, which used to always do genetic uh, research, they all also signed up to help. And they actually scaled up the PCR testing, et cetera, which allowed us to do all the testing in-house within a couple of hours. So I guess just, just reflecting on that, we signed up and said we can help with COVID. And we were very flexible in terms of what questions we can actually help with. And one thing that I learned is the importance of questions actually change very quickly as situations change. So that was a lesson maybe I, I have shared it with a lot of my students as well. You cannot be attached to your data set or your, your task. Within, a two, within two weeks, you realize, okay, this task is solved, uh, or at least in some ways uh, less urgent. But here's another task that's important. Let's, let's focus on things that you can help with. So that was like the big picture. And as April came, actually like around the first week of April, like a year ago, we started to get close to high capacity, like reaching capacity, which was the thing everybody was scared about. And during this period, many, many modeling, many analysis were done by me and my colleagues. A lot of like 20 of us were doing all of these analysis. And so when we reached capacity, the question became, okay, can we discharge some of these patients who have passed the peak? They are on the on their way to getting healthier. And like we expect that they will not experience adverse events anymore. And they can 
you know, recover uh, the last few days of it at home, or ideally, we just don't hold them in the in the bed longer than necessary, because COVID is new. So even even the trajectory of the disease where the disease is safe is also not very unknown. And that was a question that our clinical team actually defined. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Austrian, who is uh, a practicing clinician, Leora Horvitz, actually like Dr. Yen Afinian of Wundt, all the folks at different levels of NYU helped and were part of this group. And that's how we, that's, I guess, the story of one of the papers that we published on predicting favorable outcomes for patients to give this information to the active clinicians who are caring for the patients. And we showed that in patient lists and like in the, we had a COVID report in our EHR system that the model was showing the results into that report. And we actually rolled it out. So we rolled it out actually by the time we did all the validation, et cetera, it was May. So we rolled it out. We developed it mostly mid-March mid, uh, to mid-April, uh, I would say. Then we deployed it and it went institutionally, like rolled out by May. And that was how we got into this. <laughs> and uh, so that was uh, a rapid iterations and i i like you what you said that some questions became less urgent as time went on and you had to adapt to what are the new more important questions must have been very exciting and simultaneously not a very happy time in terms of the people that were getting affected and that you had to see i wanted to focus a little bit on more longer term and some work that is coming out of your lab so what has fascinated you recently about the applications of AI in healthcare? And you have, feel free to tell us any teaser to some exciting research coming out of your lab. Sure. So a lot of things are fascinating in machine learning in healthcare. I guess uh, I, I re-emphasize that we are lucky to have a lot of clinical uh, collaborators discussing the problems with us. And that is really our uh, approach to thinking about importance of problems. And because of that, we are actually exposed to a lot of very important and very interesting and very different types of medical problems that are feasible in, um, in terms of doing something that may be helpful. But before, let's say before COVID, Everything in my research is like, I have to think about it before COVID and then after COVID. Um, before COVID, I was, and I'm still uh, doing this research on trying to do early detection for dementia and improving the screening rates and outcomes of dementia patients. That has been really one of my, my interests and my goals. And so we are now quite excited. I guess in, in some way, COVID situation is a little bit more under control. So everything is back on back on track to to do what we initially had set out to do. So we have a lot of interesting, I guess, projects that have matured in terms of detecting dementia from MRI scans and also from electronic health records. And so right now we are at the point of really moving it to scale. And that is kind of what I'm excited about. So we have built a lot of models over the past couple of years in our group. And COVID time was the first time that we got all the way to deploying it and validating it through randomized clinical trial 
which is really like assessing, does this AI model help or hurt? That's like the, the gold standard of evaluating impact of AI. And like COVID was an, a very intense period and opportunity for us, for our group to learn this skill. And now that we got this, we want to apply it everywhere. So we really want to assess how, how valuable are these, uh, let's say, uh, our EHR model for predicting dementia and screening them early. And then if the patient is, has some vascular risks and they're not on the vascular medications and they, have, you know, they are still young, let's, let's just up the medication and make them adhere to whatever, you know, it's part of standard of care. So now I'm interested in scale. This, like, I feel like phase one of my research group was a lot of retrospective modeling and assessing feasibilities. And we, we have some tools now, which seem to validate really well. Now, in phase two of my research, I guess the next couple of years, I'm interested in putting them into our EHR system and also sharing it with our institutes, randomizing the actions that are based on these and measuring in the arm that, that is based on the AI versus the arm that is not based on AI, do we gain any you know, benefits? Does this AI tool sound amazing? Does it actually translate to improving clinical care? That's a high-level okay. domain, you know, like what we are excited about. And then within the applications, there's dementia, there's cancer, there is diabetes, and of course also COVID, but a little bit different flavor now, which are active on our agenda. And then there's a whole lot of other uh, collaborations that are all exciting. Very, very exciting indeed. It seems like there will be more collaboration between you and clinicians and with clinical data. And overall, in your experience, I was wondering what kind of skills you had to learn coming from a machine learning background to work with clinicians. What would be your advice to other data scientists? And the reverse, like what would be your advice for clinicians to become better collaborators or help in better collaboration models? Okay. So there are a lot of skill sets that uh, maybe sometimes are considered soft skill sets, uh, which are really very important in collaboration. So I was a data scientist, a machine learning researcher, I guess, at the time. When I first started collaborating with physicians, at first I was a postdoc. So I, I learned a lot of these skills through during my postdoc with Dr. David Sontag, who was who's an amazing PI. And we learned that data science collaborations are very iterative. So like initially, the mindset of any a lot of machine learning people is that, okay, give me the data, and then I just want to have fun with it. And I, I, I'll give me the X and give me the Y. And I come back in six months with a paper and like a model that's better than state of the art that's kind of what I like that was originally my mindset when I first uh, started but then you realize that as I said you should not be attached to the task because the tasks are not still well defined this is a new field so both sides are understanding what things can they each bring to the table and sometimes they don't even know what are the capabilities of each other and what are the uh, importance of things so as a data scientist, I would, I had learned that I would, I guess, uh, just reflect on that, that patience, iterations, presentation skills, 
learning to speak uh, things very clearly, you know, analyzing things in, in multiple ways, showing them in different ways to the clinicians, uh, having some kind of an interactive notebook or some situations where when you meet with them, well, while you have their attention, not just show them one plot, but allow them to interact quickly to get more signal. So this is something that we don't do a lot in, I guess, uh, machine learning necessarily, but it's a skill that is very valuable in, from data science. Now, similarly, I guess, from the clinical side, I guess, as, as you, Alok, and also Ashish, you mentioned, many times, because both fields are new, to like interact with each other, the clinician may not also know that some of the things are possible. Some of the things that may be actually easier to do than a lot of like uh, very core solving core machine learning problems. And it's good to expose them to all of this and be open to like the, the clinician's eyes. Like you just suddenly see, oh, there's a sparkle. They're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. That is cool. So this is the nature of how this works. It's, it's a lot of close collaboration. Like you want to have weekly or bi-weekly interactions if you can with the clinical, at least somebody in the clinical team to really be involved in this and it be iterative. Like don't, don't finalize any data set at all. It will change and you should be expecting that it will change because you're refining and together you're finding the problem that is you know, very meaningful. So, yeah, that's it for now. So, Nargis, thanks a lot for that insight. I think the points you bring up are really, really valuable. The, the basic idea here is that uh, clinicians should increase their literacy when it comes to data science and machine learning. And, and that, you know, the collaboration should be a process where both the data scientists and the clinician are speaking the same language and are really able to understand each other better. And if that happens, I can only foresee a very bright future for how you know artificial intelligence will transform the way we practice clinical medicine. And that includes how we practice you know, within the ICU as well. So with that, we're coming to the end today, Nargis. And on behalf of Lok and myself, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you so much for giving us time, providing us with this insight into some of your work, into all of the interesting ideas, current ideas, future ideas, and all of what you've done in this field. We are very grateful for what you've you know, shared with us today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And everyone, with that, we come to the end of another edition of BrainX Talks. For all those who are interested, please do come over to our LinkedIn page to be a part of our BrainX community. It costs nothing and adds so much more to what you can learn and do with big data analytics. Also, go on to brainxai.org for more information. We love collaborations. Drop us a line. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, stay safe, everyone, and take care of yourself.